Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Keaton Kirkwood again. Keaton's super knowledgeable and I really enjoy having him on the show. So this is part two of the Smith Maneuver. We end up talking about how some people on variable rate mortgages are likely going to be in trouble when it comes time to renew and how their mortgages are actually increasing month over month. Lenders are starting to adjust the amortization and extend it out. Plus, we start talking about how lenders are changing their lending criteria for rental calculations and Smith Maneuver accelerators. I think you'll enjoy the show. Hey, Keaton, just want to welcome you back to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. How's it going today? Ah, it's good. Always a pleasure. It's pouring rain right now, which I never thought I'd be happy for that in the middle of uh, June. But since it's forest fire season and all, I'm quite happy. For sure. Actually, Calgary here too, we're getting some rain, which is nice to see. We kind of need it all right across Alberta. In the market, that kind of stuff, like, are you seeing any changes? It's busy. Like, it is pre-interest rates increasing busy. We're seeing multiple offers and the major cities in Alberta, we're seeing it on the island, Kelowna, Greater Vancouver. I think that it goes to show that the supply and demand imbalance in Canada, the inability to create more housing as the population grows, there's an imbalance there. And the uncertainty of interest rates increasing caused the market to pause. It caused certain markets to shift their valuations to adjust for the increased carrying costs of higher rates. But rates didn't drop four months ago, three months ago. They just stabilized. The moment they stabilized, the market got crazy again. We saw an increase last Wednesday. They increased variable rates by 0.25%. In anticipation of this, fixed rates have increased about 0.8% the previous 30 days. So we've seen rates jump again. It's actually the sixth time this year, if I remember correctly, that we've seen this style of increase. And then historically, over the last year, it's fallen back down. Right now, there's anticipation it may increase more. But the key takeaway is that uncertainty equals the market pauses. The moment we stabilized, even at these higher rates, due to this massive built-up demand and renting being such a terrible competitive option for so many people in so many areas, the market just exploded again. Now we've seen rates go up and we're sitting on this little pause of, is it going to slow down? But at least based on the last week, no, it's not. Yeah, what I find interesting is, so Calgary, I think it's kind of almost universally known that it's a crazy market right now. It's been, you know, since maybe, I would say it really started in March, where just the spring market took off, and it just, it's kind of gotten ridiculous with the low inventory. But I knew Vancouver Island had pulled back and houses were sitting, but you're seeing that going to multiple offers again now, you're saying... Yeah, yeah, very competitive. Some of the smaller areas, maybe not multiples, but they're like things are getting snapped up. I keep in mind as a mortgage broker, I am not heavily exposed to any one market, but rather this is anecdotal experience across Western Canada. But very rarely are we seeing, you know, subjects or conditions longer than a week. And in some situations, like I've got one right now in North Vancouver, we're likely going to compete with nine other offers. So we're getting the client fully approved before they even write their offer. You know, one of the tricks that we can do to make sure that our clients are competitive in this competitive situation is that if they've done their homework, they're going into writing their offer with a real approval. So there are things that we can do, but at least in my experience, the market's still pretty hot. What happens though, is when rates rise quickly, a lot of people have rate holds in place. So if you have a rate hold for, let's say 0.75% cheaper than current market rates, it actually creates a second win to the market. If new buyers back off, we tend to see a frenzy as everybody's fighting to try to use the rate hold before it expires. 
Yeah. The psychology of the market is very interesting and a little strange. What's the typical days? Is it 60 or 90 on the rate hold? Typically 120. There is a couple lenders that'll do 130. Okay. I didn't realize it was that long. You can do up to 120 on a rate hold. Yes. But it is important to know that you have to close on the purchase by that 120th day. It does not have an accepted offer. It is closed. And when rates go up, in my experience, 99.9%, if you close one day after the rate hold expires, they are not honoring that rate. Interesting. Banks don't like to lose money. <laughs> so a lot of times clients will say to me, oh, you know, interest rates went up. Do you think that's going to cool the market off? And it's like, well, it depends on where you are in that time frame of your rate hold, but there's a long leg. You know, like you're saying, there's going to be that frenzy again for people trying to use that rate hold. So then it could be up to 100, 120 days out before an increase may have an impact on the market, like to cool things off. Yes. And I don't want to say this will always be true as this is ultimately one data point, but we saw that interest rates rose while they were rising. People kind of sat in the sidelines. As soon as rates stopped rising and we had some semblance of stability, the market picked up again. I would argue using the support of the data showing how much of an imbalance there is with population growth and housing supply, even if rates go to 9%, the value of real estate may change, but the demand for it won't. Simply because there's not enough rental inventory. The only way to get out of the competitiveness and the craziness of the rental market is going to be owning. That's going to have certain pros and cons, but I think that many people will opt for stability if rates go to 10%, let's say, which I don't think will happen. But if they did happen, yes, real estate in many markets may drop, but then it's going to find a new normal. Oh, it dropped 40% in Vancouver and Toronto. Okay, well, now it's the same cost, roughly speaking, as owning at 5% because it's cheaper. People are still going to buy. And I will argue one thing that people lose sight of, buying real estate for cheaper at a higher interest rate, I would argue is way more beneficial for the buyer than buying real estate expensive with a low interest rate. Because ultimately, I would rather owe $500,000 at 7% than owe a million dollars at 2%. Because it's more likely at seven rates will drop and I just have less debt. Whereas at 2% with a million, I'm much more vulnerable that costs go up, that rates go up. Yeah, that's very true. One of my clients, he's an electrical engineer, and he has a company here in Calgary. He works with developers and his company will kind of spec, you know, the infrastructure, the electrical infrastructure for subdivisions, that kind of thing, commercial stuff. So I was picking his brain about bottlenecks. And he was saying that for a transformer, for a subdivision, depending on the kind of the make and model, it could be anywhere from 70 to 150 weeks to get the transformer. And he was also telling me that there was a builder here in Calgary over the winter that had 60 homes sitting vacant because they just could not get the transformer. And I'm like, okay, well, so why are these transformers so hard to get? And he said, the industry's kind of changed. And a lot of these manufacturers, metal manufacturers are actually pursuing electric vehicle, charging stations, that kind of thing. So he said that the precious metals and stuff are being used for that. And he said, unfortunately, you kind of send a lot of this infrastructure to the U.S. over Canada. So he said Canada is naturally kind of getting screwed in a way, right? And I'm like, well, I found that super fascinating to hear. And well, here's the crazy thing from a business perspective, and I don't know the numbers, so I'm completely just making stuff up. But I imagine many of these transformers are built overseas. So there's a certain cost savings of cheaper labor. But then you have to ship them. Imagine if you're a developer or anyone who gets to make a decision, there's a 70 to 150 week delay. Would you pay 25% more to have it in 20 weeks? Imagine the carrying costs of 60 oh, units sitting vacant. Unbelievable. Like, I think we will start to see manufacturing move back to home as just we see the world get a little bit 
less stable and as these issues get magnified, you know, and that's one of the few things I would like to see the government step in on is create more and more business incentives to bring this stuff home just for stability, forget costs. You know, we saw it a few years ago. I won't bring up the name of the thing that happened, but with medication production, but that's yeah. another story for another day. hundred <laughs> percent. Like if you're a developer and you don't have really deep pockets, how are you going to actually basically not go underwater? How are you going to not go bankrupt if you don't have enough capital you're sitting on, right? With that many homes just sitting there vacant and then you got contractors that need to get paid and everybody reaching out to you. I couldn't imagine. Like that's just crazy. Well, I've heard that even part of the transformer issue, and I don't know how true this is, is unverified, but I've heard a few different times that certain areas of the world that are in conflict, there's been a lot of targeting of the infrastructure and that that alone has sucked up a lot of it because the world seems to revolve around this. Let's build just enough to meet demand. You get a conflict where, you know, if a country with a reasonable population starts to have their infrastructure targeted, you know, all of a sudden, oh, there's another 5,000 or 100,000 or whatever it is, transformers that are gone. And we just have such this precise level of production and supply that the slightest imbalance, it just throws everything for a loop, you know? Yeah, I can see that. Okay, so I got another topic I kind of want to jump into. I was at the multifamily conference in Toronto, and it was a great event for networking. And there was a guy I was chatting with. He's involved with private lending. And now I'm going to get you to kind of dig into this and give you a yep. better explanation. But so he... Basically, high level is he's saying that if you're on a variable rate mortgage, they're seeing basically mortgages come across their desk that have to 75, 80 year amortization. And it's because of the variable rate has continued to increase past the trigger point. And the banks are now adjusting that amortization to keep the payments from basically ballooning out of control. So, and then there's a bit of this kind of behind the scenes thing going on between OSPI and the big banks, but I guess we don't know really what that looks like, but if you could just start off by explaining the differences in the two different types of products, and then we could maybe dive into that. Sure. So I want everybody to think of there's an umbrella of floating rate products, home equity line of credits, adjustable rate mortgages, and variable rate mortgages. I think everybody knows what a home equity line of credit is. It's interest only payments, time plus a half or whatever, capped at 65% loan to value. Now, the products that we're talking about today is an adjustable rate mortgage, which means that as interest rates increase or decrease, your payments increase or decrease. What that does is it keeps you on track for your amortization. So you're going to ride the payments increasing or decreasing, but you're going to pay off your mortgage in 25 years or whatever you expect as long as you keep doing it. The second product, which this individual is talking about, is called a variable rate mortgage. Now, this is a floating interest rate fixed payment product. Now, these weren't created to solve this issue. These products have been around as long as I've been in the industry, so at least eight, nine years. I don't know exactly when they made the first one, but essentially it has a fixed payment. So when people had these products and interest rates dropped, their payments stayed the same and they paid off their mortgage faster. The flip side is that when interest rates, let's say triple in a nine month window, your payment stays the same, your interest costs grow and grow and grow, eventually you hit something called the trigger rate. That is the point where the interest you owe for that month exceeds what your payment is. So up until the point you hit the trigger rate, your amortization is extending. You had a 30-year mortgage. As interest rates rise and your payment stays the same, your amortization stretches 40 years, 50 years, 60, 70. Somewhere around 80 or 90 years in your amortization, you're very, very close to making essentially 100% interest payments. The next increase happens, you hit your trigger rate. All of a sudden, the payment you make does not cover all the interest you owe. Now you're in something called reverse amortization, which means that you owe more every single month. 
The thing that comes after a trigger rate is typically the trigger point. Now, this will be different for certain lenders. As an example, at Coast Capital, a major credit union in BC, when you hit your trigger rate, you also hit your trigger point. Essentially, what this means at the trigger point is this is some predetermined situation by the lender where they say, hey, Corey, rates have gone up. I think you know that. Your payment hasn't increased. You've now hit a breaking point with us. You're generally going to have three options. One is make a very large lump sum to bring the balance down so that your payment equals, let's say, a 30-year amortization. Typically speaking, we're talking about two, $300,000 here. It is a very scary number. The next thing they suggest is often locking in your mortgage into a fixed rate, which also it will often at today's rates bring your interest rate down a little bit because fixed rates are lower than variable rates. But it also brings your amortization back to whatever it should be. Let's just say 27 years if you're three years into your mortgage. The third option they'll sometimes offer that you should consider is simply increasing your payments to get back to interest only. This is generally the safest option if you're kind of struggling. But my advice to people is that I don't care what some people say. I do not believe interest rates are going to drop significantly in the next 12 months. Maybe not in the next 24 months, maybe not in the next 36. Like this could be the new norm. And the last thing you want to do is be playing with losing your home on that assumption. If you need to do a budget, you need to figure out your kind of sustainable numbers. And we've actually created tools for clients to create a budget of their household, put in their mortgage details, and it tells you what your max interest rate is on your current amortization and what the max interest rate you could afford is if you were to go back to a 30-year amortization. So we've created tools to help people find clarity and kind of this uncertainty. But at the end of the day, if you realize I cannot afford my mortgage, I hate to say it, you got to call Corey, you got to say, Corey, I don't want to sell, but I think I might have to. Because if you don't have the ability to come up with extra cash to make more money or somehow to bring the cost of your mortgage down, you are treading water or running on a treadmill. And sooner or later, you're not going to be able to keep doing it. And I'm a believer that at the very least, you want to have a plan built out. That if you realize, uh oh, we are starting to slip, like this is only going to get worse, you want to have that parachute packed and be able to move quickly. Yeah, I agree. So if you're on a variable rate fixed payment mortgage, you may not even know if it's the amortization that's being adjusted and you've gone past the trigger point. You're saying basically, let's say the person's mortgage payment is 2000 Now, with all these increases, maybe they owe the bank. Let's just keep it simple. They owe them 3000 per month. What's actually going to happen in that case is their mortgage is growing every month. That's correct? Yes. So then this went on, say, for five years, and you're at 12000 a month. All of a sudden, look, you know, maybe you go to renew, and all of a sudden your mortgage is fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 higher. And that's probably what's going to happen. He was saying, just his ballpark number, but maybe about 20% of the variable rates out there were on this type of product. Is what he was thinking. So I don't know. Yeah, I think it's around 30 or 40, but a reasonable percentage of Canadians have this product. And there's an easy way to know. Did you take a variable or floating rate mortgage? If the answer is yes, have your payments increased when interest rates went up? If the answer is yes, my payments have gone up automatically. You're in an adjustable rate mortgage. You don't need to worry outside of can you make those payments? If your answer is no, my payments have stayed the same, even though I know interest rates have doubled you're in that product and you should be reaching out to someone for advice and guidance. Now there's gonna be a reckoning in one of two situations. One is that you hit that trigger point. That is where you hit some predetermined level where the bank calls you and says, hey, Corey, we've got an issue. We need to fix this. You make a large lump sum, you increase your payment significantly or you lock into a fixed mortgage, which will increase your payment significantly. Or you hit this milestone at renewal and they're gonna say, hey man, 
you're $26,000 behind on where you should be, what they'll usually do is they will offer you whatever new rates are. So you're going to see a significant jump in your payments anyways, because you're adjusting to a higher interest rate. But they will often I'll use the example, you took a 30-year mortgage, you're five years in. You should have a 25-year amortization remaining. But because of this product, you're on track to pay off your mortgage in 80 years, let's say. What they're going to do is recalculate your payments to get you back on track for that 25-year amortization which means you're going to see a bigger jump than you would expect normally shifting to the interest rate because they actually have to increase the payments a little bit more to catch you up. So that would be coming for people in that situation. You got to start moving forward. Is the, 100%. Is the yeah, 100%. And unfortunately, I think there's going to be a lot of people that actually have no, unless the bank is actually sending them a letter and they're reading it and notifying them. But if there isn't those contact points and they're not unaware, it's going to be a big shock. Well, and here's the thing, though. There is a certain degree of accountability you have to take if you know you took a variable mortgage. I think if we have a mortgage and we took a variable mortgage, we at least understand the interest rate can change. If you have a variable mortgage and you know interest rates have gone up and your payments haven't changed, that should be an alarm bell to you. Hey, this is a little strange. Call me, call Corey, call your bank. I don't care, but call someone and start to dig into this because this problem will not go away. And I'm a yeah. believer, if you know that this is coming in 12 months, eight months, whatever it is, it's a lot easier when you can plan for it. Definitely. Do you think banks or have you heard of any of them calling out to clients? Like if you had a client reach out to you and say, hey, my bank reached out and this is free. They are sending out. out letters. They are sending out letters? So they are starting to reach out typically when people hit their trigger rate. So that's the point where you basically you don't pay enough to cover the interest. But that's pretty late in the game. This issue has been going on for a while. It's not disastrous, but it's not a good thing to find out, hey, you've been paying your mortgage and you're not paying anything off. And your mortgage is growing. And I think in this case, I think a lot of people, because they're probably not feeling it today, so they're not feeling the pain today, right? It's like, oh, my mortgage has stayed the same and this letter comes in. They're probably not even going to really worry about it until they actually have to go to renew or you know, there's a day of reckoning kind of coming, but they're probably just going to go with their daily stuff they're doing. Their life is busy. And it's like, my payments are the same. I'm not worried about it right now. It's probably what's happening. So I wrote a big blog article on this. I'll send it to you. And for anyone who's confused or weighing their options, we can throw it up in the video. It outlines kind of the different options and what the cost differences are, but they are substantial. Sitting in these variable rate mortgage products and then stretching your amortization back out to the maximum renewal, it is a massive increase to the cost of your mortgage over 25, 30 years, like six figure differences. So at the end of the day, I think we can probably both agree most Canadians don't have a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars to give up from their retirement. I know that this isn't a nice thing to hear, but the sooner you rip that band-aid off and you start dealing with this, the less likely it's going to ruin your retirement. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad we're chatting about this, and we'll have to put a link to your blog post in the show notes so people can access it there too. And you can find it on your website as well, right? Is that where you absolutely have it? Awesome, man. And then, so you said that there's going to be some changes. I want to talk about some, maybe some up and coming things. So the readvanceable rules are changing, I think, for mortgages. Is that what you, you mentioned? Yes. Yeah, so they're changing in November of 2023. There's still a little bit of confusion as to exactly what these changes will be. Most likely what they're going to do is currently with a readvanceable mortgage, that means that as you pay off your mortgage debt, whatever you pay off becomes available on a line of credit. Likely it's going to go from every dollar you pay down becomes available to roughly for every dollar you pay down, you'll get access to about 81 cents, which not terrible, but it does impact certain aspects of the Smith maneuver. And we just have to be aware of these changes. 
The good news is as it's currently worded, it sounds like these changes will affect all new mortgages and any existing mortgages will be updated to these rules at renewal. So I think there's going to be a big opportunity where we're probably going to have a lot of clients want to redo their mortgages August, September, October to get five years of the old rules. And then likely by the time you get to your renewal, you're already past the point of this mattering. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So you had mentioned that there were some different phases and they're called the basal one, two, and three. Could you maybe just kind of go through that for the listeners a little bit, high level? Yeah, very, very roughly broken down. After 2008, the international banking community and the government said, hey, we don't want this to happen again. So they came out with a set of international accords that would be followed by the major countries of the world called Basel. I have no idea what Basel 1 was. It was before my time. Basel 2 was the stress test that everybody knows amongst smaller changes. Basel 3 was implemented quarter two of this year. So a couple months ago. Essentially, what it's doing is it's forcing banks to carry larger deposits relative to the loans they have out, which is one of the reasons why we see variable rate discounts sucking so much. And we've seen rates crawl up a little bit is that the banks have to charge slightly higher interest rates to make the same money. So ultimately, maybe these rule changes make the banks a little safer, but they're banks. They're not going to make less money. They're just going to pass that cost onto the borrower. I don't really blame them. That's just the way they operate. I don't think it's fair, right or wrong. I stay out of that. But essentially put, it's messing with how the lenders operate. And we're expecting we'll also see some changes with how they calculate rental income because some of these changes are around what are deemed higher risk or higher vulnerability loans which typically mean higher debt servicing ratios and reliance on rental income. So as the last eight years of my time in this industry has taught me, things are just going to keep changing and generally for the worse, which I think ties into anyone who wants to buy a home and particularly real estate investors, the bar is going up every year, every month, and you need to start acting more and more like a business. You need to be organized. You need to be analytical. You need to move forward with a sense of purpose. You need to buy investment properties that tie into your bigger goal and will support the qualifying for that rather than this old school cowboy way of just buy it because it's a good deal. The bank will figure it out. They want the mortgage. Now, I'll be blunt on any regular sized rental mortgage. The banks hardly want the business. They want a relatively small percentage of their lending portfolio to be rental properties. Otherwise, they get picked on by OSPI and they're seen as higher risk to investors. So if you don't go forward, you know, freshly showered in a nice outfit with perfume on in a lending sense, <laughs> the bank's not going to bend over to lend to you. You know, they're not excited. Oh, it's your seventh rental property, Corey. Yay. Yeah, we'll get you that good rate you want. Not. <laughs> You're going to be providing a briefcase full of paperwork. And if you've got five days to go find that paperwork, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's where working with an expert like yourself for investors, I think, is key. Some of that you know, in tune with industry and these changes? It is, but this is probably the worst thing I could say as a business person, but it's gotten so bad that my business partner and I have regularly debated, will we even accept new clients that come to us with a complex situation and an accepted offer? It's just that rough of an experience where it's like, okay, great, we've got seven days and we're going to spend three days doing an application, working on documents with you, going back and forth about why certain documents don't meet lender standards and won't be accepted. Odds are we're going to have to compromise and submit a file due to timelines before we want to, potentially with slightly wrong details, because we haven't confirmed what the current mortgage payment is or what the 2023 property taxes are, which just leads to more and more issues. And at the end of the day, nobody's happy. Yeah. So it's getting that bad that my advice is that if you think there's even a chance you're going to buy something in the next three months, start now. Yeah. 
If you've got even two rental properties and you've got an accepted offer with five days and you don't have your paperwork ready, I'm not saying it won't get done, but it's not going to be a happy experience. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great advice. For the last part of the show, we didn't have time last time on the Smith Maneuver, but there were some accelerators and I know it's quite in depth and we certainly aren't going to cover it in the next 15, 20 minutes, but it, maybe we could just start off kind of explain what those accelerators are and how they help someone's, you know, implementing the Smith Maneuver strategy. So I'm going to start off with a little bit of a background. We remember that the Smith Maneuver is the most efficient way to flow funds, to minimize interest costs, maximize tax deductions, and to get money invested for retirement sooner. That's the core idea. Now, this is based on the elimination of non-tax deductible debt. So debt that was used for personal purposes, buying your home to live in, jet skis, travel, enjoyment. We know that that debt is non-tax deductible, but we also know that the CRA allows us to write off interest on debt that was used with a reasonable expectation of earning income. So in other words, if we borrow to invest in certain things, we can write off the interest costs. Now that's the knowledge of it. Just about every accountant in Canada knows that if you borrow on your line of credit and you buy a business, you can write off the interest. Where the Smith Maneuver comes in is that's the knowledge. The Smith Maneuver and my expertise, Robinson Smith's expertise, the other professionals we work with, is the application. Everybody knows that if you borrow to invest, you can write off the interest. But the Smith Maneuver is about how do you apply that knowledge to the real world to maximize the benefits and the results for Canadians? So this is where we come into the basic Smith Maneuver. You pay down your mortgage. That creates room in a line of credit. You invest it for retirement. You get to write off the interest. You take those tax savings. You pay down your mortgage. You repeat the process. But that's the basic level. There's accelerators of the Smith Maneuver that we can take that concept and we can modify it. And when we modify it based on someone's circumstances, situations, or goals, we can create significantly better results based on that individual's situation. And I'll give an example. When I ran numbers for my own household, we have roughly a $540,000 mortgage. It's at about 5%. I used the baseline that I was going to earn 8% from my investments. The basic Smith maneuver over 30 years would increase my family's net worth by roughly four to 500,000. But if I buy two rental properties, and I'm not talking about the increase in value of these properties, the principal pay down, but simply take the rental income from those properties, and use it to pay down my mortgage, eliminating the non-tax deductible debt. And then I reborrow to pay for the expenses on these rental properties. That could allow me to make my mortgage fully tax deductible in six to seven years. So that let's say year seven, I can now write off 100% of the interest costs in my home. That can take the benefit from maybe $500,000 up to a million or 1.3 million. Where this starts to get really crazy is that, let me just pull up my financial calculator if I've got it handy, here it is. If I take $500,000, we're just going to do some real rough math, and I am at a 5% interest rate, that means I'm going to spend $25,000 a year in interest. For simple math, let's say I'm at a 50% tax bracket. That means that by writing off that interest cost, so years 7 to 30, that's 23 years, I'm going to save like in my pocket $12,500 every single year. So times 23, that's $287,500 of savings. Now that sounds that's great. That's just on your personal taxes, you're saying. That's just on my personal taxes because yeah. I get to write off the interest cost in that 500,000. Now I'm using rough numbers. You could argue the amount of mortgage debt's gonna fall every year. But where this gets crazy is that that $12,500 of savings every year, if I reinvest it, so I invest an extra $12,500 from year seven to 30 into let's say the S&P 500 index. And I earn an average of 9.8% interest, which is roughly the average. 
I, I don't have it in front of me, but if we want, we could pull up a compound interest calculator, set the initial investment to zero, $12,500 invested annually for 23 years, so let's call it a 10% return, you're going to get a very, very big number. It's one thing to have the knowledge. It's another thing to understand the application. And I'm actually curious. I'm going to do this right now. So we could keep <laughs> chatting, but I'm not looking at you right now. I'm just no, that's it. But this is where the Smith maneuver, this is where professionals get separated from people that just kind of understand it. Because knowing that there's these opportunities to make these little tweaks make a massive difference. So here we go. Initial investment zero, we'll call it a monthly contribution of a thousand, which is slightly less than what we have per year, 23 years. Estimated interest rate, let's call it 10, actually, you know what, let's call it 9%. Let's just assume that the stock market starts to do worse than it is right now. Over 23 years, that's going to create an additional, so it'll be $835,000. It's pretty incredible, actually, what happens with the compound over those years. Like It's mind-blowing. Now, that $800,000 is essentially a new creation by taking well, the basic Smith maneuver and optimizing it based on that situation. And then you're talking, this is just one accelerator is what you're kind of basically a single sharing. accelerator. What do they so call this? take this a step further, and I think this is where your audience will really appreciate it. I think a lot of your audience is like, that's great, but I don't care about the S&P 500 index. I'm a real estate investor. Okay, well, let's just, I'll use myself as an example. I have a house with a $540,000 mortgage. Yeah, I bought that milestone in my life. Now I want to buy real estate. Well, I could JV, I could do all sorts of creative strategies to get down payment, but maybe I like to do things just kind of a slow, steady and stable way, which is what I personally like, even though I specialize in all these different strategies. Normally, I would have to pay my mortgage and then save my down payment on the side. But by using the Smith Maneuver, all of the down payment that I'm saving on the side, I could instead use to pay down my mortgage. So instead of it sitting as cash, well, I just wait till I have $100,000 to buy a rental and it's just sitting there. It's in a GIC or whatever. I can use it to pay down my mortgage, getting me a 5% return on investment day one because I'm avoiding that interest cost. But not only am I avoiding the interest cost, I'm also avoiding having to pay tax to earn the money to pay that interest. Because if I have to pay $5,000 of interest at a 50% tax bracket, I have to go earn $7,500 to do it. Mm -hmm. So we start to get a compounding efficiency. Because I owe less on my mortgage, now every payment I put towards my mortgage, more of it's going to paying off that principal, less is going to paying interest. And the investors are probably like, well, Keaton, that's great. You're saving money, but I need that money to buy a rental. Well, here's the beauty of the product we use for the Smith Maneuver. All of the money I use to pay down my mortgage is waiting for me on a line of credit. So let's just say in three, four years, I save enough. I pay down my mortgage enough. I now have access to $100,000. I can go buy a rental property. The borrowing my down payment to buy that rental property is now tax deductible. So there's my first investment with the Smith Maneuver. That is going to lead to, I have a rental property. I can begin the cash damning strategy, which is what I spoke about. So you take your rent, your tenant gives you, let's just call it $3,000 cash. So it's very clear for everyone to follow. You take that $3,000 you got before you pay for any expenses on your rental property. You take the $3,000 and I pay down the non-tax deductible mortgage on my home. Now I owe $3,000 less on my mortgage, which creates $3,000 room on my home equity line of credit. I now take that 3,000 room on my home equity line of credit and borrow to pay for my rental property. Well, my rental property is essentially a business expense. So I get to write off that interest. So this allows me to convert debt very quickly, eliminating non-tax deductible debt and replacing it with tax deductible debt, which leads to these bigger savings. 
And that is ultimately how I can go from, let's say, improving my net worth of my family, $500,000 with the regular Smith maneuver and improving it 1.2 or $1.3 million with the advanced or the one of the accelerators of the Smith maneuver. And I don't know about you, Corey, but like, I feel the burden of not only taking care of my kids once they grow up, and I think it's going to be harder for them than it was for me, but I also feel the burden of helping take care of my parents because I know that they're not going to have any retirement. I can't speak for everybody, but I don't have $1.2 million I can just ignore. I don't have $100,000 I can ignore. So I'm a believer of understanding these strategies and implementing them for my own family as long as I can do it in a way where I'm okay with the risk I'm taking on and I can minimize it as much as possible. It's great to talk about the good. What's the bad of cash damning? The biggest one is that I have to make my mortgage payment, but I also have a home equity line of credit payment. So let's say it takes me seven years to pay off my mortgage. Year six and a half, I'm going to have a relatively large payment on my line of credit that's tax deductible, and I'm going to have my mortgage payment. At that time, maybe 95% of my mortgage payment is going off to paying the debt. So it's kind of like a forced savings at that point. But I do have to budget for that cash flow. And I think it's one of the mistakes that the less experienced people that advise on the Smith Maneuver make is that they don't factor this in. It's great to look at the positive, but you've also got to look at what are the drawbacks? What are the negatives? What is the impact on your lifestyle? And it's only with looking at all of that can you decide, is this the right fit for you? Yeah. It's not something you should just rush right into and just, hey, I'm going to do this. Like You really have to do your due diligence. My average client will spend usually four to six months mulling it over. Now, that doesn't mean that every day they're spending three hours thinking about it or studying it, but I'm a believer that with that much time, you can think about it for 20 minutes a week, but it lets you really figure out, are you comfortable with it? What questions do you have? Is your spouse on board with it? And all of this is important, but it is good to know that the product you need for the Smith Maneuver is not any more expensive than just a normal limited product. So often what we'll do is when someone's not sure or the renewal's in six weeks, we'll put them into the right product. We just won't use it. And if they decide it's not the right fit for them, oh, well, they've got a built-in safety net, a contingency fund. If they ever decide to buy a rental property, they've got an extra place to consider accessing money. The one thing I really want to touch on is that I'm guilty of not simplifying this. Like, I don't want to misrepresent the strategy and say like, oh, it's really basic and it's easy and it's risk-free. It's not. There are moving parts and you should have a team of professionals working with you. But I think that there should be a very high bar for understanding the strategy because I'm a believer that you should be accountable as a homeowner, as an investor. You should understand what you're doing. But that's the understanding. The actual implementation takes 10 to 15 minutes a month. It's not hard. Like my use of the Smith Maneuver takes me eight or nine minutes a month. I literally pay my mortgage. I transfer money off my line of credit into a checking account. I then move that money from the checking account. Part of it goes to paying the interest on the line of credit. The rest gets put into my investments. I'm done. For the cash damming, it adds one extra step. I take my rent. I pay my mortgage with it. I borrow on my line of credit, put it into the checking account, and then I go pay for my rental property expenses. And I pay the interest on the line of credit. Takes minutes. But yeah, yeah. there are lots of things in life that don't take very long to do that have big consequences, you know, like putting your seatbelt on, <laughs> you know, it takes 10 seconds, yet some people don't do it. And there's big consequences. So I'm a big believer. And I really want to, I would almost rather scare people off if you're not going to do the due diligence to put right professionals around you and to understand what you're doing at at least a functional level, you just shouldn't do the strategy. You know, if yeah. you're someone who calls up your buddy and you're like, hey, what's a hot stock? And then you go buy GameStop because they said it's a good idea. 
I would suggest you approach this strategy with extreme caution because we are dealing with debt, we are dealing with taxes, and we are dealing with demand loans that if things get really weird in the world, or if you really piss off your bank, they could say, pay us back. So we need to make sure that Canadians who use this strategy, like do it well and do it as safely as they can. It's yeah. not a Reddit thing. <laughs> Great advice. Each lender has a different readvanceable mortgage. They're not all created equally. Is that correct? 100%. Can you maybe just speak to that just high level? I know we can't get into all the details, but... So there's, with all banks, there's a little bit of a spectrum of pricing and functionality. Maybe the difference between the cheapest and the most expensive is 0.4%, let's say. I'll go on one extreme. There are banks that only allow you to make extra payments against your mortgage once a year on the anniversary date. So those lenders may be really useful for the simple strategy, but if you want a cash down, as I mentioned, which I could use for my family to increase the net worth by about 800,000, that lender doesn't work. On the other stream of the spectrum, there are lenders that allow 20% prepayment any time a year, doubling of your payments. They allow three mortgages and three lines of credit on the same product, but maybe they're 0.2% more expensive. So if you don't need all of that functionality, maybe we fall in the middle. We find a lender that allows 15% prepayment any time a year, double all the payments on your mortgage. They allow one mortgage, one line of credit, and their interest rates are very competitive. Maybe they're at the bottom end of the spectrum. So there's not a right or wrong choice. It's just a question of what works best for you, Corey. And the last thing you want to do is go save 0.1%, which on a $500,000 mortgage, that's $500 a year which I want $500 a year. But if all of a sudden it means I can't use the cash damming strategy and I want to, and I'm a real estate investor, is it worth saving $500 a year at the expense of not being able to save $12,500 a year? I don't think so. So I think the biggest thing is making informed decisions and making sure you're working with professionals that are going to give you the information so you can make those informed decisions. Definitely, yeah. Great advice. Every time you're on the show, Keaton, you're always to share such awesome information for the listeners. So I really appreciate having you on. We're just going to finish up just a few personal questions. I tried to switch them up from the last one. So what's a favorite book or a movie of yours? I'm going to pull it up. I wrote it down. So there, <laughs> there was a Scottish author. This is fiction, but there's a Scottish author who wrote a book series called The Culture Series. And it's like hard sci-fi, but it deals with a lot of philosophical and kind of different things. And oh. One of the books is like a 13 book series. They're all very loosely related, but one of them is called Surface Detail. And that is probably my favorite book because it dives into the idea of existence. And this is science fiction. So it takes place like in the future. But the idea that in the book, there's a war fought between two nations over one nation has a digital existence. They upload people into an existence and it's essentially hell. So they take people's personalities or beings' personalities and put them in this digital hell. And the other group feels that that's no different than doing it in the real world. And there's a war fought over this. And it explores the idea of what are the rights of, you know, just because you and I are real people, that's great. You know, we acknowledge that we have rights. But as technology gets to the point where maybe we can create AIs or maybe people can upload themselves into a digital space, do they have the same rights as living flesh human beings? If you inflict harm or punishment or good on something that's digital, is that wrong? Is that right? And, and I love these things that get my wheels turning. So that's probably my favorite book. Wow, because it's it, interesting. And kind of fitting for what we're seeing with the technology, you know, with AI and stuff, right? That's, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool. I've done a terrible job explaining it, but I, I love it. I don't think you did. I think that was good, man. And the whole, it's just an aside, the whole series is based on the idea of a group of we we'll call it a nation in space, right? Like a 
an empire where they believe in complete pacifism. They'll never harm anything. They'll never hurt anyone. They'll only defend themselves. But because they're so pacifistic, they have a smaller subset that believe, well, in special circumstances, you can do a great evil to avoid a much greater evil. And the whole book's tied in like the morality of this. And I enjoy things like this that really struggle with the, you know, is it okay to harm a hundred to save a billion? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I agree with harming people, but I just it's no, no, it's, just just as an example, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it sounds fascinating. <laughs> That's okay, favorite quote. This is tried and true, but definitely know your circle of competence and stick within it. The size of that circle is not very important. Knowing its boundaries, however, is vital. I like it. So that's Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett. I think it's so true. Know what you're good at. Know what you know. If you're going to step outside of that, make sure you've got people that do know it and that you trust. Yeah, for sure. And then what's something you want to do that you've never done before? Like something like jump out of a plane or is there something? I've like done two solo jumps skydiving. I've been scuba diving a bunch of times. Believe it or not, my goal is to learn to ride on a horse and to Ride a horse bareback galloping. That is my current uh, <laughs> thing I want to do. Is just it'd be cool. It'd be an experience. Have you, so have you been riding like one with a saddle just to kind of get practice or or not yet? Uh, a little bit. Mostly been practicing a little bit bareback. But uh, as a male, you have to learn how to sit properly. <laughs> not fun. <laughs> oh, I bet. Uh, I bet. It's for sure. My wife loves horses, so I've been trying to spend more time in learning that. And I just I've been scuba diving. I've been skydiving. It's just another experience I want to try. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? My phone number is 778-847-0552. That's my cell number, so please don't abuse it. My email is keaton at kbmortgages.ca. And my website is www.kbmortgages with an S.ca. I'm on YouTube, Instagram, all that fun stuff. So I do post a lot of this stuff on YouTube, explaining and breaking down this stuff. It's not designed to be sexy or exciting, but rather to give people access to the information so they can make good decisions. And how do I simplify it and break it down as short as possible? Yeah. And then you occasionally do like live stuff on Facebook too, don't you? But you do yeah. like, is it like webinars, that kind of stuff? Yeah, we do all sorts of stuff. We talk about current events. We dive into real changes. We'll, we'll break down a strategy. So my Facebook is business focused in a sense. I put my family stuff up there, but it is a business thing. So feel free to add me on Facebook if you want. It's not a, that would be the best way to follow you, right? Because if you if you have a webinar or that kind of thing coming out, if someone wants yeah, to I, I put just about everything on my Facebook. So Facebook and YouTube are probably the two best ways. Okay, awesome, man. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Love having you on. Always appreciate it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host Corey Peckford. I'm an investment focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at Peckford Corey, or my website is coreypeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.